I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. On this episode, I talked to Sam and Michelle Cameron from Perth, Australia. Perth, Australia is one of the most isolated major cities in the world. It's thousands of miles away from the other major cities in Australia. This church that they lead has been there for decades. They took it over in 2017. The church had been under 50 for its entire life, and yet over the past four years, they've grown the church to over 100 disciples. The church is thriving. It's got a strong young ministry. The older disciples are growing strong. Find out how they did it and what they've learned in this episode of the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I'm here with Sam and Michelle Cameron from Perth, Australia, and I am so happy to be able to talk to them today because I've heard such great things about them from other people who've said, hey, you need to talk to the Camerons. They're doing a great job in Perth. And so Sam and Michelle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Great yeah, to uh, finally meet up. You were really hard to pin down, Sam. I mean, you were you were dodging me real hard. I've, it's been at least a year since I first contacted you. What's what's the reluctance? What's the reluctance? Um, I don't know. We're not like I, I think, especially being in Perth, which is highly isolated. We are pretty. Yeah, I don't know. We shun. We don't shun, but we avoid a lot of the. I don't know, global life, global politics. Okay, okay. I want to talk more about that. Now, let's just start off by asking, how did you become Christians? You want to share first? Sure. Um, I was born in uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, My parents were missionaries that had come over to start the church in Sydney just a year before I was born. And so um, they started the churches in Australia um Mike and Tess Fontenot and so I grew up um in the church and I grew up uh yeah with parents that were very strong disciples and taught us to live that life and um that that was our identity that Christ was our identity as a family and as people and so um yeah so then um we moved to America when I was 12 Um, and both my sisters had become disciples. I'm the youngest of three girls. And, uh, when we moved to America, I knew, um, you know, I was 12. So I was on the cusp of kind of starting to study the Bible, wanting to be interested in that. So, uh, yeah, we moved to Virginia and, um, yeah, one day I approached my teen leader and said, um, I'd like to start studying the Bible. And so, they started taking me through character studies and because I had grown up in the church, I knew these aren't the real stuff. (laughs) 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 This doesn't guide the gospel. And so I said to my team leader, thank you for that study in John, but I would like the real thing, please. (laughs) And um, 
So there was some, obviously pride and arrogance came out in my sin list. Um, but uh, yeah, so I started studying the Bible. My parents found out in their um, weekly staff meeting that I was studying the Bible. I think the team leaders said in some of the new studies, uh, your daughter. So um, yeah, so I studied the Bible and um, had great team leaders, had excellent team leaders that did their best with me. I also needed my mom to sit me down a couple times at the kitchen table and do sin study number two and number three with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I became a Christian when I um, had just turned 13. And so that was in 1995. And um, yeah, so it was a teen uh, Christian and then struggled real hard when I left um, when I left for university it was my first time kind of being out on my own deciding okay do you believe this for yourself or just because you grew up that way so I had a real in a sense reconversion process in university mostly um, again fueled by my own sinful decisions that had taken taken my heart a little bit away from God but um my parents called me every day my freshman year while I was struggling through that and um, helped me to see Jesus again. So, yeah. Um, and since then, um, yeah, my faith is just uh, really, really, I'm so grateful to become a Christian as a teen. Like that saved me from so much and um, made such a great foundation. I'm also grateful for the struggle I went through and kind of that reconversion because that really solidified my faith as my own. And um, that has been that way since. Yeah. Wow. How about you, Sam? Kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. I grew up um, in a tumultuous household is probably a politically correct way of sharing that. Uh, and then got reached out to as a, I think, second year uh, or third year of university. Uh, I was at Old Dominion University in Nor Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, got reached out to by a uh, young man, young man named Kirk Valencia, a uh, great Filipino American brother. Um, and he reached out to me like in, I think it was like August uh, of 2001. And I was very arrogant, but I was American. So I believed in God, but I didn't really want to follow God because I was living the party life and I was playing university level soccer there. And uh, so I said yes and gave Kirk my number and then avoided him like the plague uh, for the, about three months, September, October, November, and then kind of, I think, you know, I really began to, to kind of reap what I'd been sowing for years and my life kind of crumbled and uh, drugs and alcohol were spir spiraling and um, soccer was going horribly. Uh, they were threatening to, to transfer me. And so I actually had saved Kirk's number. And so I humbled out and called him and studied the Bible in, in a week or two and got baptized uh, December 10th, 2001. Okay. So. 2020. Okay, so you're coming up on 20 years as a disciple. Yep. Yeah, it just passed. Yeah. Oh, old timer. Getting there. Okay. Getting older. Okay, I got to go back to you, Michelle. Like, what was it like growing up in the Fontenot household? I mean, you got you got your mom, you got your dad. I mean, powerhouses spiritually. I mean, we're not just talking disciples. We're talking like super disciples. So what was that like? I mean, just just as an insider. Her least favorite question. <laughs> Makes me nervous. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously didn't know any different. They were my mom and dad and my family. So um, you don't really know what you have until you look back and you think, oh, that was really great. <laughs> um, I think that there was huge um, positives and also some 
some negatives that I took on. Um, obviously, the huge positives were that um, even when I struggled in my faith, I never considered walking away because it would be walking away from who my parents were, who are who all my friends were, who I was even as a person. So even at my lowest point, I think they had established that amazingly that this is who we are. So I felt like, how can I walk away from who I am? Mm -hmm. You know, so that really kept me grounded. So they did such a great job. Um, my parents love the word. I think they're very known for that, for, um, for loving the scriptures, for teaching really well um, the scriptures and they, and they taught us well to use it as our foundation always. Um, so that was great. I think um, uh, maybe because I was the youngest and maybe things got a little more tumultuous in the kingdom as right. I was maybe in my teenage years, I had the reaction to leadership of um, I'm never doing that and I'm not going in the ministry. Um, and so I remember, uh, yeah, saying, no, nah, not going to do it. No one's going to tell me where I can move and what I'm going to do. Right, and, right. Um, so that, uh, yeah, that was hard. Um, although my parents, and so, well, I, I think I, yeah, had that view of um, the ministry. They just tell you what to, where to move or whatever, even though they did it, but there was always this kind of like, we might move mm -hmm. all the time. And um, so I always felt like, no, I'm not doing that. And I was just really fearful in that way. Um, I think the great thing about my parents though, was no matter what they went through, they never were bitter, nor did they ever say negative things about the kingdom um, or about people. So right. I remember even when I was maybe my early twenties um, and still kind of like, or maybe my late teens and still like, no, I'm not gonna do leadership. Um, and think I'm not going to be in the ministry. Um, I remember asking my parents, they'd been through hard things and saying like, don't you feel upset at these people for things that you've gone through? And, um, and they said, no, why would we feel upset about that? No, it's, it's, it's about God. It's not about people. Wow. And so I remember at that moment thinking, oh, I don't really have a right to be bitter or upset if my parents are bitter or upset and that actually <laughs> didn't happen to me, things happened to them. And so, um, yeah, so I remember going into university and they wanted me to start helping to lead a Bible talk. And I remember telling my dad, no, no, I don't want to lead. I don't want to lead. And he said, Michelle, you're just afraid. You're afraid. Um, and you're letting fear uh, control you. And I remember being saying like, well, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> and so he said, uh, he said, just give it a try. Just yeah. give it a try. Just give it a try. So, um, yeah. So I remember that that had that kind of effect, but, um, but my parents were great at guiding us through in that way. And um, yeah, so that was kind of like, that was growing up in the Fontenot household. They would take everyday things and make them deep spiritual lessons all the time. Right. Right. That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. Well, how did you guys meet and get married? Um, we, we both were in, when I became a Christian, so Mike and Tess were leading the Hampton Roads Church there in Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. Um, and the Virginia campus ministries were all pretty, I think they are still like very connected. Like, so we, they would do uh, campus retreats together. They would do like, you know, for us, we met through, I got set up on a blind date with her roommate. Because I was at James Madison University. So it was so, like three and a half hour yeah, drive. Three and a half, four hours. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, I was a young Christian and you know, new to the whole dating and all that, all that. And so, yeah, someone basically coerced me into 
taking her roommate, Lindsay Landis, on a blind date uh, uh, to a Valentine's dance. And so we kind of got to know each other a little bit through that. And then the next day, a bunch of us had, I think, a meal together before we headed out, you know, returned back to Norfolk. And so Michelle and I sat next to each other and chatted the whole time. And uh, I thought she was pretty awesome. And then when she came home to see her parents for, uh, for Easter, uh, I took her out on a date then. Mm, and, a little follow-up. Yeah, yeah. Mm. A, very, a very good follow-up. And then my best friend died. And so I disappeared for about two months, month and a half. It was a while. Um, so I went back down to North Carolina and was down there with family and stuff for a while. And uh, then came back to Virginia Beach for the summer. Somebody had, somebody had donated a lot of money to Hampton Roads Church um, to run an internship and hire a bunch of, I think they hired 20 young people for the summer. And so we both were in that program. Uh, and so we worked together in that program. And by the end of the summer in August, we started dating. So that's we worked with the preteens together. Right? Yeah, we did preteens. Okay. <laughs> okay. So then you guys started dating and. Oh yeah. Okay. What was it about Sam that you liked? Michelle. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, I think the thing that I was drawn to was first of all, his dashing good looks, um, <laughs> but it's, it's radio <laughs> his face for radio. Um, so, but I think when I started to get to know him and I started to talk to him, I think because I was coming from such a complicated history of, in my own heart of even what I was talking about with leadership and feeling mixed about it. And um, when I talked to Sam, one of the biggest things that struck me was how simple and solid his faith was. Mm. That because I had had, because I'd grown up around leadership, leadership and sometimes my faith would right. um, yeah, coincide together and get mixed and jumbled up. But he didn't have that. He didn't have any of the, I guess, baggage maybe that I had. And I loved that. I loved it. He was just like, wow, the mission is so simple. It's so clear. I want to do this. And that's really what, what drew me to him. That's awesome. That's great. Now, how did you guys end up in Perth? Well, that's a long story. It is. Yeah. Well, so Maybe. we ended up dating long distance for, <laughs> oh, do you want us to shorten it down? <laughs> No, just maybe you can just give us a kind of like how you got there, like a, you know, like a summary of your ministry career when you guys got married and what brought you to to Perth. Yeah, We dated long distance for about two years. Um, And then I graduated, moved to James Madison University to help uh, lead that it's like a small campus ministry that was driving about an hour to church. Dave Bliley was leading it at the time. Uh, and so I took over from Dave um, and Michelle and I went to graduate school, got our master's degrees from James Madison. We got married uh, that same year, 2004. Uh, and we stayed there for about three years, small, small town in Virginia, you know, one of the, the typical university town it's crowded during schools and then empty when the school's out. Uh, and so we stayed there about three years. And at that time we were both doing ministry um, pretty much full time and working full time jobs and getting our master's degrees. So Michelle was teaching special education in a public school. 
uh, I was uh, a soccer coach at James Madison training their goalkeepers. Uh, and so we did that, yeah, for about three years. At the end of that, it was just not... We were tired. It's not sustainable. <laughs> uh, during that period, I had uh, I'd come to Australia a couple of times with Mike Fontenot. Uh, him and one, one trip was me, him, Kevin Rowland, uh, Forrest, Purcell. We came through, spoke some of the churches, uh, and I loved Australia. So in Virginia, we actually contacted Mike and Karen Vasallo, who leave the church in Melbourne, and you know, basically fished for a job. Uh, they they were keen, but the 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 plans didn't align, and so we ended up moving to South Florida instead, uh, to Palm Beach County, and we we were there for about three years doing teens campus in a region uh, under Lowell and Angie Hoover. Uh, which was awesome. Some of our best. Great training in the ministry. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking for someone to interview, they're, they're a phenomenal couple. Yeah. We love them. They helped us heaps in our marriage and ministry and just life. Early parenting. Um, and then South Florida kind of became a bit unstable and tumultuous. And so we again contacted Mike Vasallo <laughs> and fished for a job. Uh, and that time it, it worked out and yeah, so so we we sold everything basically, uh, and at that point we had we had two we, we had one kid we had our, our firstborn, Allie was two two, Michelle was nine months pregnant with Maddie, our second. So we basically waited for Maddie to be born and get paperwork, get an Australian passport, uh, and then we flew to 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 uh, not Melbourne, but <laughs> we were going to move to Melbourne. Uh, Sydney was going through a difficult time. Kevin and Jessica Rowland had moved there and they were kind of the only staff, young staff uh, on a church that had a lot of baggage. Uh, and so since we had had some experience with kind of rocky churches in South Florida, we were shifted from Melbourne to Sydney. So we moved to Sydney, uh, yeah, in 2010. And I think we arrived in like July, July 1st, 2010. Um, we served there for about two years. And then got shifted to Melbourne. We were in Melbourne for about five years. And then, yeah, now we're here in Perth after that. So you've been in Perth for four years now? Yeah. Okay, so how, like, you've got two kids? Three. Three. We had another one in Melbourne. Okay, so how, how old are your kids Jake. now? Allie's 13, Maddie's 11, and Jake is seven. Oh. And Allie just got baptized this year. Oh, yeah. congratulations. That is awesome. So you've got a full house of kids, all girls. Yep. The youngest is a boy, the first boy Fontenot grandchild. <laughs> and then my sister had a boy. So there's eight girls and then me and my sister have there's two boys at the end. <laughs> I bet your dad is really happy about that. I think we it was all shocking. None of us thought we were genetically able to have males. So that's that's a great story. Okay, so you come back. How did that feel to come back to the place where you'd been born? Uh, you know, it was it was interesting. Uh, obviously, when I left when I was twelve, I had never driven in Sydney nor worked in Sydney. So my view of Sydney was a kid's you know childhood view through the lens of you know amazing country, so much fun, go to the beach. Uh, yeah. So then it was. It was those things, but it was also another dynamic of, oh, wow, this is not as fun when you have to work with all these problems and sit in Sydney traffic. 
a lot of the women and I mean, older, older women and men um, had known me since I was born. Right. So uh, that felt uh, at first kind of intimidating to feel like, okay, I need to help figure out a way to lead um, these women who I have had as aunties my whole life. Right. And uh, so that, that took some getting used to, um, but we loved Australia the minute we, we moved here. We thought, yeah, this is where we want to be. Um, so yeah, and it's obviously I sound very American. And so it's just very confusing for people uh, where I'm from, what I, you know, different Australian words come out every so often, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was definitely different, but uh, we were very happy to come right. to Australia. It was exhausting though. I mean, Maddie was only seven weeks old when we moved. Yeah. So starting a new job in a new church in a new country, wow. um, that was, it was, it's a fuzz. It's fuzz. I'm, I'm not sure what happened. I think, I think we did. Okay. But blurry two sure. years. <laughs> okay. So I'm not an expert on this, but you, Michelle, you seem to have like a, what I would consider a light Australian accent. I mean, mm. you could, it's there. I'm sure it's harder for you to tell, but there's also some traces of American accent in there as well. So what got into you to go to Australia and live down under? I mean, that's about as far away from the Eastern seaboard as you can imagine. Yeah, that's part of the reason. Uh, <laughs> crazy, crazy family does motivate it. I think the other thing was, I think the main thing was like I visited in 2004. I think I visited again in 2007. Um, and we had lived in like, religious Virginia, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and I think after years of kind of the American religiosity and uh, battling baptism all the time. Yeah. The, I don't know, the, the kind of the, the hyper individualistic American viewpoint and the right. fragility that comes with that, the Australian culture, which is like unapologetically secular, right? I mean, America, you share your faith and you talk to a hundred people, you get 90 yeses with 88, uh, you know, made up phone numbers. Right. I mean, Australia, you, you, you get 80 no's, but you get 10 yeses and the 10 yeses will actually sit down. They'll actually have an honest conversation about their faith. And, and I think that really appealed to me. Wow. You know, kind of the idea of you don't have all the religious baggage. You don't have all the, you know, hypocrisy and, and all and all that stuff that you have to wade through in America that's way more um there's a simplicity about Australian culture and it's a yeah I don't know I like I like I think that there's a a cultural humility about Australia that's appealing you know and and when I met a few Australians I felt very drawn to to come and yeah and we've loved you know we've loved living here and good taste of multiculturalism for sure yeah, now, it's very community culture as well in that way. So yeah, I think it was good for us. I think that's one of the big things that Hoover's helped us with is learning to form our own family and own identity. You know, apart apart from Michelle's. That would be a hard a a, a big shadow to to work under, Mike Fontenot. He's got such a a long history, a great history. Um, he's person I totally respect. I mean, he's, um, there's so many things I really appreciate about Mike, his conviction, his attitude of, Hey, this is the way that 
I feel like God's calling me to lead and I'm going to lead. But it would be challenging to to work under your father-in-law and at least under his area of influence. How do you, how do you Sam, how do you work as your own man, but at the same time work with your father-in-law and, and just kind of maintain your boundaries? I mean, I do think Florida was probably very good for us in that regard. Um, if you've ever, had, you know, hung out with Lowell and Angie Hoover, I mean, they are, they are very, in, you know, individual, you know, they're strong as individuals and independent in that regard. And I think for us having, you know, I, I think very formative years in terms of ministry training, early married life, parenting, having them training us was really helpful. And, and then even when we moved to Australia, we moved like with no guarantee the Fontenot's were moving or the Bricelles or the Blyleys. It was, it was, we stepped out and we moved and whether they all came or not, it, that didn't really matter. That was good. We were going to go because we felt like that's where, where God wanted us to go. So I think that helped. Right. I think that helped us to get, you know, strong in our marriage and in our ministry experience, uh, independent and separate from them. I, I think the other thing that helps is Mike and I could be very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, him and I, we, we have definitely butt heads a fair bit over, over the years, uh, but we always hash it out. We always work it through and we move on together. We, we run together the uh, BMF, the BEAM uh, mission training school for the South Pacific. And we've done that together now for, I don't even know, 10 years, eight years. Um, so I think that helps right. for sure. So you, you, you basically moved independently prior to Mike and Terry or Tess moving back to Australia. So it shows a lot of personal conviction, Sam, like, let me just ask you this. You've mentioned Lowell and Angie Hoover a couple of times. Their son is actually in our campus ministry here at the University of Arizona. What was it? What was it that made it such a seminal time, such a um, a formative time for you in the ministry? What was it about them or their conviction or their style of leadership? I think it was a lot. I mean, I think it was our first time just doing ministry. Uh, and then when we... The, the Hoovers arrived in Palm Beach, I think only like six months before we did. Yeah. And it was a region that had been through a lot. It was pretty downtrodden, not a lot of faith, not a lot of hope. I mean, they had, I don't even know, 50 kids and only one kid was a disciple in their teen ministry. But Lowell and Angie just had this like unwavering faith. God, God will turn, turn it around. Pre- preach the word, love people. And, and it will change. Mm. And, it, and it did. I mean, we, you know, when we left Palm Beach after three years, I think there was like, I don't even know, it's probably the opposite of like 50, 60 teen disciples, um, only a handful of, of kids that, that had become disciples. And the church had radically changed. I think we had 100 and, 100 and something baptisms, you know, over the course of that, that three year, you know, two and a half, three year period. And I think a lot of it was, yeah, they just had this faith. Lowell and Angie had this faith that, you know what, we preach the word, love people. It will, you know, God will breathe life into it again, you know, and he he did. What's the history of the church in Perth? How did it get started and how's it gone since it got started? It's a a vague history. I think it started in the late 90s. Um, 
and then I think it got kind of abandoned and neglected from 2000, I don't know, 2001, maybe to 2010. Yeah, when all the churches in Australia were struggling and struggling to maintain their own church yeah. because it was so isolated, it kind of got a bit forgotten. Yeah. And so, I mean, thankfully that Perth has a lot of, they, at the time, that time period, they had a lot of people move, even disciples move from the UK uh, to, to Perth. Um, that's a common migration route. And, you know, like Jim, Jim and Fiona Doherty, uh, Trevor and Pansy Stewart um, were probably two couples that did really help to make some efforts to keep, keep the church afloat. I think it was still probably only like 30, 30 members or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I'll always kind of like hung around that. John and Danny Lucas moved over from Melbourne in 2012. We think 12 or 13. Uh, And they helped to stabilize. I think they were the first full time staff probably in Perth in, I don't know, maybe 10 years. Yeah, since maybe 90. 12 years, something like that. Long time. Uh, And they they were here for about four years and did a great job stabilizing it. And then, yeah, we moved in October of 2017. And the church was about 40 disciples at the time, 45. And now we're about 105. Hopefully. 110 as the year finishes out. So we'll see. Okay. Let's just um, stop, cool. stop right there. First of all, that's amazing. Congratulations to go from 45 to 105 with a church that had been stagnating for a long, long time, or at least plateauing at under 50. How did you do it? Let's just break it down. What was your plan and what was your mindset going into it? How did you get it past a hundred? I mean, I think our plan was essentially like what we were talking about earlier with the Hoovers. I mean, it just just preach the word and love people. Um, you know, that's our role, and God will God will make it grow. Uh, and so we did that. I mean, we, you know, week in and week out, preaching the word. You know, calling people to a higher standard, but loving them and helping them get you know get back their their eyes fixed on Jesus. I think the other thing that helped, we did have people move. Um, so two, two of uh, close couples from Melbourne moved with us, uh, Sam and Mia Percy and Alex and Fen Chong, uh, which that helped. Um, Pamela Lamb came with us as well from Melbourne. She was going to go even before we were going to go. Uh, and, you know, she's an awesome single sister that took a huge step of faith and, uh, you know, came with us. My nephew, on yeah, on staff. Uh, my nephew moved. He had become a disciple in Melbourne. Uh, he had come and lived, you know, came and lived with us for, I don't even know, too long <laughs> and became a disciple as a result of that. Him and his girlfriend moved as well. So I think that helped. It wasn't just like, just us trying to turn, like you said, like a, a kind of a stagnant group. There was a fair bit of an in- injection of faith in new people. Um, and then I think God really opened the door. I mean, we converted some young people pretty quickly that ended up just being one of those like kind of long lines of a bunch of people who all knew each other, uh, all becoming disciples in, in a two, two year, three year period. So that, I think that really helped, uh, a lot for the church to kind of have faith again that, yeah, people can mm-hmm. become disciples. And, you know, as the young people began to really grow the, the marriage's started having baptisms as well. And, you know, so the whole, yeah, the whole group started moving forward. Yeah. And I think in a small group that's been 
a bit stagnant, um, you can start to what they say well, major in the minors, you know, get very specific on certain details or um, just get very stuck on certain points. Well, what about this person? And what about that issue, small issue in their life? Or, um, you know, that was kind of the mindset. A, a lot of people that we that were here in Perth and we came to the church to help disciple them, but that was kind of what had happened. They'd just become so micro-focused and almost like we just have to hold it together. We just have to stay disciples, which I'd hold it together, but it kept them quite inwardly focused because they hadn't seen that that growth before. So I think um, Sam and I have learned and hold very strongly to the conviction of don't react, <laughs> don't react, be faithful. That was instilled in us very young in the ministry. Um, and so just kind of that, you know, just start to get the ball rolling and, um, and yeah, we, it really, the young people really, uh, exploded first, which is great. Cause that's also when you're young in the ministry and our small church, one of the things, um, that you were advised to do is to focus on the young. They're the easiest to kind of turn around and get converted. And then they, um, help convert the older people or help change the older people and get, get them fired up. And that is, um, that is exactly what happened. Um, yeah, here as well. That is so cool. Okay. So let's talk about that. How did you start converting young people? You're, you're sharing two things. You're saying, first of all, you came with a few other people, like between five and 10 people, like kind of a resurgence or a, a second wave planting in a way to strengthen you. So it wasn't just you guys. So you, you came with some backup, which really helped to kind of bring new blood into an existing, I mean, of course, faithful disciples, but an existing situation. Then you started converting young people. You had faith that God would turn it around and he started to add to it. So how did you reach young people? I mean, I went on campus. I mean, I just, <laughs> there's no substitute for it. You know, I mean, as a 30, at the time it was 37. Mm-hmm something like that, 36, you know, just got on campus, started meeting people. Um, I mean, for the first couple of years, I was on, I was doing Bible talks every week at two of the campuses, you know, directly involved in, in the few, I think, you know, the few university students we had very, you know, remained very much involved. Um, I mean, it's awkward. And I think that's a lot of times why some people don't, don't do it. It's a big age gap, uh, but yeah, I don't think there's a substitute for it. It's got to do the work. <laughs> In the states, the the culture is growing increasingly secular. Of course, not as much as Australia. What advice would you give to ministers who are wrestling with that and just going, "Hey, where's you know, where's the responsiveness?" People are much more on campus like, hey, you know, I don't need Christianity. I'm not interested. I don't even think about it. It doesn't even cross my mind. What's your approach in reaching a more secular population? I think, I think for me, I've always seen that, that secular divide as a positive. I mean, it's, it's light and darkness. And when you remove the gray, it does actually stand out. Um, and, and I think, I think it's a lie that people don't actually think about it. I, I think they do think about it. Uh, I think whether they even realize that they're thinking about it, they're thinking about it and they're, you know, I mean, secularism ultimately is empty and it doesn't, it doesn't work. People's lives, you know, they, they crumble and they fall apart because they're, they're created in the image of God and trying to find that identity 
without him does doesn't work. And I, and I think people, I think if we believe that, then it, it, the secularism is not it's not an obstacle. It's opportunity mm. uh, to to reach people, and it's a it, it's a greater impact of a conversion as well. Mm. Someone who's not been churched, you know. I mean, we have we meet we have people quite frequently. Like we had a, a a young guy who's who's hopefully getting baptized the next week or two. He brought one of his friends the other week, and it was the first time she'd ever been in a church. You know, and and that's that's a great thing, right? Um, you know, and and a great opportunity because they are they're a blank slate. So if you if we can take the time to teach them and train them properly, they actually have a great solid foundation with very little religious baggage. Uh, and you know, I think it is it's fertile ground for growth as as a result. Okay, that's that's very helpful. So you just went on campus, even though you're a little bit older, and just had faith and God worked, pushed through the awkwardness and you view kind of the secular environment as a positive rather than a negative. Michelle, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I agree with all those thoughts, of course. Hmm. Um, I had Pam is my, uh, girl intern. So she's younger than I, so she, and then having three kids, she's very helpful. Um, she'd be my legs on campus a lot. Um, so that's always very helpful when you're a mom and, um, but I think that the other thing, uh, coupled with that is the kind of community aspect and the friendship. And even though people are secular, um, or maybe even, yeah. And, and yeah, even though they're secular, but I think in Perth, Perth is such a, um, it's a place where you want to almost live it up, you know, but in a way of like, you've got beautiful beaches, you've got beautiful land, people go four wheel driving, they go, um, skydiving, they go camping all the time. Like it's very much about life and living life, but because of that, people do things a lot together. And there's a lot of community, there's a lot of outdoor community. We've never been in a, even a school community here that was so tight knit that, I mean, so many friends and so many people, they're just, uh, they pour themselves into the community. And I think that's what I see. People are looking to pour themselves into something secular or not. And here in Perth, it's a lot of that, those relationships. And so I think with these young people, we built um, strong relationships with them. Uh, we, yeah. We built great friendships with them, brought them into our family. Um, we opened up our lives. I mean, Sam and I have never um, really done the ministry around our family. We've never been in the same city doing the ministry. So we've always had to create our own family uh, wherever we are. And so and so that's the church and that's all these people. And we bring them in. And um, and I think that really helps um, secular or religious that helps people. Right. Um and I think that's really made a difference because um, people then connected, we connected to them, they connected to us, and then they brought their friends and we all connected. It became this big friendship family circle um, that they bring more people to. Yeah. Building family. Okay, fantastic. One, one of the most common questions that I get from small church leaders, small ministry leaders is, how do you instill faith in middle-aged Christians? people that have been around for 10 years, 20 years, even 30 years, who've seen it all, heard it all, maybe have a little bit of baggage from the past. How do you get them going again? Yeah, and I think it's like earlier we were talking about, you know, I think as simple as the Ezekiel Valley of Dry Bones. It's 
it's just the word. And if we can preach the word, you know, accurately and, you know, I don't know, not correctly, but I think really learning to draw out actual scriptures. I think a lot of, a lot of times it's, it's topical and it's shallow and, and, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't sustain or reinvigorate your faith. It's got to, you know, they need meat. They've been around for a while. They need depth. Like we're doing our midweek series right now on revelation. And a lot of those middle-aged disciples you're talking about are, you know, have come up to me and said, they've never, you know, they've been disciples for, I don't even know, Jim and Trevor, 30, like 30 years, 40 years. And they've never, no one's ever gone through revelation. Uh, so I think, you know, I think that's important. I mean, that's probably one of the keys. Yeah. And I think I've learned that from like, you know, M Michelle's dad, Mike, uh, but also Ed Anton of just, you got to draw out what the word says, not, not your own agenda, not your, your guess of what the topical needs are. Like really just preach the word mm -hmm. verse by verse. That's, I mean, Mike and Ed are like known for the expositional teaching that they, I mean, that's, that's their thing. That's like their bailiwick, so to speak. How, how have you guys seen God work in your ministry? You've grown up from 45 to 105. Any special miracle stories that you go, that was, that was the presence of God. That was God working powerfully. Anything like that? I think, I mean, I think Pam is a good example of that. I mean, she was a single woman that took an enormous risk. I mean, leave, you know, Melbourne at the time was a 290 member church. Um, a lot of young people <laughs> and she moved to a church of under 40 with very few young people uh, with, you know, not great prospects of, finding a spouse, you know, but she took that leap of faith and, you know, she's getting married next, what, January, she's getting married January. To the, to a guy that the, is the first conversion we had when we moved here, <laughs> which is great. And they're, they're both working part-time in the ministry. I mean, it's, you know, that's I think awesome. God blessed her, it blessed her leap of faith and, you know, provided for a husband that hopefully will do the full-time ministry, which she loves as well. Yeah. I think we've had a lot of families. Um, yeah. A lot of family miracles. I'd say one of the first um, married women that got baptized was a doctor um, that she had met uh, two other, an, another doctor and another nurse that are in the church here met her at a conference. She was moving to Perth from Albany, which is a rural town. And she said, Oh, I need a, I need to find a church. And so, and she had sat right next to them and they said, well, that's handy. We have a church for you. Um, and so she studied the Bible, got baptized. Um, then her husband said the Bible got baptized. Then her son said the Bible got baptized, um, her 19 year old son. And, um, and we also have had, um, a, a girl who was a disciple for a while and her sister became a disciple. And I think because we are isolated and people haven't been out of WA or people haven't, which is Western Australia, um, WA or into WA, um, we've had, I think because of that, during the pandemic, we've converted a lot of our families because <laughs> they've been around and the only people we can see. So we also this year had a, a guy named 
uh, Bailey become a Christian. Yeah, it was the last last baptism of last year. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, last baptism of last year, and he was terrified. Uh, his family was quite religious. He was terrified to tell them he was becoming a Christian. Um, actually, didn't actually didn't tell them. <laughs> I mean, he was like twenty four, but still didn't tell them. And then, um, yeah, their life. You know, they started to get quite unhappy in their church, and then we were like, well, maybe we should go visit Bailey's church. Um, they ended up coming with Bailey's sister. And this year, uh, they all became Christians on the same day, didn't they? No, or no, one week apart. The dad was a week. The week dad before. was a week before, and then the mom and the sister a week after. Um, and that was just—they're such an amazing family. Um, so great, such givers, and that's been great. I think to turn those married women around. I mean, they just—they just forget. They forget what a, even people have been disciples a long time. They forget what it's like to be you know, fiery and young and um, wanting to get out there and do something. But then when they start saying the Bible with one of their friends, they start to be reminded, oh yeah, this is on the edge. This is exciting. Um, you know, it's risky for them um, to get out, getting out of that comfort zone. And so that's really helped um, with the, the middle-aged people uh, as well turning around. But wow. yeah, lots of family, great family stories. I did an interview a while back with John McGurk from Paris, and he talked about your heavenly entourage, you going to heaven and bringing your entourage with you and converting families. And he attributed much of the growth there in Paris to that. And it sounds like the same type of thing God is doing there in Perth, where you're reaching out to a lot of different relationships. You're converting one person, a, a man of man or woman of peace, and then those relationships are bringing other people into the kingdom. Is that, is that on target? Yeah. yeah. I think Perth's I mean, a size city too, where it's, you know, there's not very many degrees of separation, no. you know, so you convert one person and, you know. What's the population? They, I mean, in the state, it's 4 million or something like that. Yeah, the whole state. But the state is huge. It's like, I don't know, from, from Colorado West or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's massive. But massive just Perth massive. area is 2 million. 2 million, yeah. So there is really only, I mean, you've got maybe one, maybe two degrees of separation, but I mean, often you're out in Perth and you see people you know all the time. That's awesome. But yeah, even our first, first guy that was baptized, Jono baptized his friend from um, their old church, Jack, and then he converted a school friend who com she converted a, her school friend. She converted her family friend, then converted a girl she went to um, study abroad with. And then, yeah, the yeah. chain, there's lots of Long chains, chains. <laughs> which is really exciting. That's, Those are fun. That's so I think cool. that helps geographic. I mean, I think, yeah, there's geographical advantages in, in that size city. Yeah. What? Okay, so you've talked a little bit about the benefits of the isolation because people tend to, to be more clannish, closer, fewer degrees of separation. What are some of the challenges of living in a city that's so remote or isolated from other major cities? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's like I said before, I mean, in a, in a pandemic, it's awesome. I mean, we've pretty much been, you know, cut off in terms of even... COVID. I mean, we don't really, we have no, almost no restrictions, no mask wearing, none of that, no cases. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, it feels less like protection and now more like a prison. Yeah. So I do think <laughs> we're stuck I mean, in our safety. And we've had a lot of, I don't know, we've had six or seven marriages 
yeah in the last couple of years and so i think at this point the young people are starting to like thankfully this past weekend the some of the uni and professionals from south australia from adelaide were able to come for a weekend um and i think that was a breath of fresh air because you know it does get left to yourselves it's kind of like i'm tired of seeing the same person right week in and week out you know i've i've dated you know so and so and i'd like to meet someone that doesn't even know him you know and that kind right. of expanded i think for the young people is probably yeah that can be quite hard yeah a lot of our young disciples have never even met a disciple from outside of perth yeah. um and they've been a disciple for now a year and a half plus so <laughs> that's yeah so it's kind of like you know brothers and sisters fighting like i want to meet more people you know right. um right. get out from this but so that has, that has ended up hard. It was a blessing at first and now it's ended up hard where um, we just haven't been able to have that injection of, you know, when they, when they, you go to a retreat or you go to a conference and you kind of just get a new perspective or you're, you just see something different. It just kind of gives you a fresh feeling, um, which then when you come home makes you glad for home. Cause you're like, now I feel refreshed coming home. We haven't had that yeah. <laughs> a long time. We've been home for a long time right. and um, and haven't yeah had that for a while. So that is that is challenging. Yeah. yeah. So COVID hasn't really had a big impact on the church there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what we're saying. We've and we've had like maybe a month total of Zoom that we had to do Zoom. How in awesome the past two years. Wow, that's yeah. great. That's fantastic. Now, let me just ask you this. What do most people not know about you? <laughs> We're pretty transparent people. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, most people don't know that we do live on two and a half acres and we're kind of like mini farmers. <laughs> we like to think we are. <laughs> I, I, I'm hatching chickens. So I've got little chickens. Uh, I've got my incubator. We um, I slaughtered some roosters the we, other week. We slaughtered roosters. <laughs> we um, yeah, we're a little bit like on the edge. We've got the quad bike. The kids ride the quad bike around. Look like little hooligans. Um, we're a little bit rural. Yeah, <laughs> you're country folk. You you like the the country. There you go. We are, and we bought this with my parents, so they have yeah. their granny flat side, so it's kind of exciting. Nice. I, I saw the picture. The, the backyard looks so nice. I mean, just looks so inviting. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, they get to come. They've tried. They they've tried three times in the last year to yeah. to come, but our border won't even open up to other Australian states. So. Oh, that's the reason why. It's been so, you've had such a low incidence of infection because of the restrictions getting into it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have a desert that separates us from the rest of Australia. So it's, yeah. it's you can drive it, but they just close one that, road. that one, one or two roads and that pretty much stops. <laughs> no, have, you, you have you ever driven across the country to Sydney from where you're at? You ever gone through the outback? Uh, no. no, my mom and dad have though. Yeah. There's a long road called the Nullarbor, and it's just, it's just nothing, nothing for <laughs> hours and hours. Days and days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes our closest capital city is Adelaide, which if you got in the car and drove straight without stopping, would take you to over, a little over 24 hours. Oh my gosh. Um, 
So it's a long way with nothing, no water in between because Australia, all the cities are on the outside because of no water in the middle. Right. And so it's dry, dry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What are your plans for the future? I mean, you, you've had a great four years. Um, you got a lot to be proud of, a lot to thank God for. What do you get excited about when, as you look to the future? I think hiring more staff. I think, you know, we have Pam's, Pamela Lamb's on halftime and her fiance, John, Jono is on halftime. Um, so I think, yeah, getting, getting full additional full-time staff. Um, I think, it, and I mean, next year, early next year, I think we'll appoint deacons uh, year or two after that elders. Um, there's not, I mean, we, there, there are kind of major population centers, not like how the rest of the world would view major, but in terms of Western Australia, major population centers of a couple hundred thousand people to the south. So eventually we'll have to, you know, we'll plant uh, another group down there and get that going. So but... that sounds yeah. great. That sounds great. What advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count? Go for it. I think that, you know, when, you know, people are, people are young and they want to go on adventures, they want to do something or, um, you know, I mean, it's great. Make your life count is, we were just talking about that actually of how, how that coincides then with kind of, you know, that kind of simple faith life. Um, And I I think that, um, you know, if you want to make it count, then, it's really your personal relationship with God. I mean, obviously that's an obvious answer, but I think that we've been in so many different countries or countries, well, cities and many different churches. And the thing that has sustained us through all the places is not the circumstances, but our relationship with God and our faith. And I think that making, to make your life count means that your connection with God and your, um, the rock that you stand on is really solid so that no matter what the circumstances are, I mean, some of those moves we wanted to make and some of them we didn't, <laughs> some of them we did happily and some of them we did drag in our feet, but knowing that our rock was always God, um, that was never in question. So wherever we were going to go, whatever we we're going to do, we were going to seek first the kingdom and we we're going to make disciples. And so that was in, in essence, if you do that, your life counts. You know, yeah. if you've made one disciple and you've, you've converted a soul, your life has counted for That's sure. Right. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think it gets easy sometimes to like pursue doing the great things, but then not do the little things. Mm. And so I think just doing the little things day in and day out, you know, is is vitally important. And if you don't do the little things in your tiny unknown ministry, like I mean, I don't, you're probably not going to do your little the, the the little things that are necessary on a grander scale. So I think just learning to embrace that, that simple life of just follow Jesus, do it, do what he says. And, you know, where that takes you, that's up to him, but wherever it is, you've got to do what you're supposed to be doing, what your role is, you know, planting and watering. I was just reading a book called good to great. This is a book's been around out for, you know, decades now, but it talks about how some companies will go from, you know, good performance to just fantastic performance, exceptional in its category. And that's one of the very things that's mentioned is 
for companies or organizations that do exceptionally well, they call it um, um, getting the flywheel going, basically doing the small things over time that really bear, uh, you know, amazing fruit in the future. And that's kind of what I hear you saying there is that when you're in, what it talks about is when you're in that kind of a company, you don't really see the big things happening. It just seems like you're just kind of grinding it out day by day. But when you're an outsider, after a few years, you go, whoa, that's growth. That's amazing what's happened. And it's tempting to go, what big thing did you do to get the get that organization going? And I, I guess what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that doing the little things over time, having quiet times, sharing your faith, um, you know, it adds up. And before you know it, something amazing has happened and you go, whoa, that, that's pretty awesome. Would you agree yeah. with that? Is that is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. And I think especially in small churches that are stuck, people, they they look for the silver bullet. They look for some, you know, external uh, variable shift that will will work magic. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, we've done lessons on it in the past and talked about like Ephesians 5 uh, talks about how we, we are light. We are meant to live as children of the light. And if you, if you, if we do that, if we live as we're meant to live, then what does light do? Light exposes and it illuminates and creates more lights. And there's a simplicity about that, that, but I think a lot of times, yeah, in smaller churches or ministries, that have become stuck, we look for other solutions than simply the, the, the most basic one. And I think that's why, like, even like we were laughing earlier about uh, our reluctance in terms of politics. I think that's probably what drives me the most crazy about politics, uh, especially church politics, is it's a lot of talk and it's not a lot of action, is how, it's, how it seems at times. Uh, and we end up majoring in these things that are not actually overly important. That's awesome. Sam and Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for uh, carving out a little time. I know uh, you're reluctant and yet it's been (laughs) super, super special to have you guys share the good things that God is doing in your church over time. It's a, it's a bright spot. It really is a a light and and a great example to me and I'm sure to other people listening. So all the best to you in the future. I, I'm going to be praying to God that someday I can get out the, there to visit you. You said there's good surfing there on the on the coast, and uh, that'll that'll be awesome. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate you persisting, and yeah, hopefully yeah. someone learns something or gets inspired to do something. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.